I'm Stephanie McNeil, he is David Mack, you're watching AM2DM, and unfortunately neither of us got visited by Oprah yesterday. What so the hell? It is not a, thank God it's Friday for us. I am like furious about this, it's as if we live in New York and not the great state of Georgia. Yeah, I don't really understand why she's only doing people in Georgia and like only visiting people in Georgia when she's promoting a Georgia gubernatorial Rude. candidate. Rude. I mean, Rude. here in New York, we can't vote in Georgia, but we still we still want to open Oprah. our door. Yeah, get, like those videos yesterday of her walking up to people's houses and that woman just like almost fainting as she realizes that holy crap, it's Oprah at the door. I think I would die. It's like the public chairs clearinghouse. Now she has to go to every state and do it because everyone's feeling really left out. But you had an interesting conspiracy theory. You were like, I don't know if that wasn't all those houses weren't vetted in advance. Not, yeah, not even just vetted, but I was actually just in Atlanta a few months ago and everyone is very into this race. I was on a block where almost everyone had a sign for either Kemp or Abrams in their on their lawn. So I think that she definitely was going up to people. She wasn't like going up to people who didn't have like any outward oh, sign right. of political affiliation. I feel like she was going for the people who had the huge Stacey Abrams okay. signs. To make sure she wasn't gonna get embarrassed. Yeah, to make sure that she wasn't gonna get like, it was, she wants a good reaction. Well, yeah, true. She's Oprah, she gets, she makes yeah. good TV. Yeah. But I loved uh, Mike Pence uh, in also in Georgia yesterday giving a speech saying, look, I know Oprah's in town, I know Will Ferrell's in town, but I'm a pretty big deal too, come on. That was like, that broke my heart. That was like the saddest thing since please clap. That was very sweet. I love that. I'm like the new emoji, like <laughs> in response to that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you never try and say like, I'm just as good as Oprah. I feel like not even like. That's rule number one. The, the only US. person who could possibly yeah. say that is like maybe Michelle Obama. Anyway, <laughs> on to the most important news of the day. Here's a tweet from Brian Houlihan. Ariana publicly destroying Pete is so satisfying to those of us who lived through K-Fed. Ain't that the truth? Okay, I was in a show last night, so I caught a little bit of this drama, but please, I'm ready for the rundown. Give me what happened. Okay, well, it was about 8 p.m. Okay. I was laying on my couch, Buffy was at my side, and I was on Twitter, and I just saw this whole kerfuffle happening. So, you know that SNL puts out those teasers on Twitter? Yes. I guess they air on cable. I yes. don't know, I don't have cable. And so Pete Davidson there was, was there with uh, Jonah Hill and right. Ma Maggie Rogers, who's a singer-songwriter, lovely, right. lovely woman. And as a little bit in the teaser, she he pretended to propose to Maggie Rogers okay. as kind of a bit like, oh, you know me, I'd propose to anyone, ha ha ha, sort of thing. And Ariana was like, not happy about that. And she wrote a few tweets that she has since deleted. Yeah, so uh, she deleted these tweets. At first, someone had tweeted something along the lines of like, I'm Maggie or something, or like tag yourself, I'm yeah. Maggie. And Ariana quote tweeted it, basically being like, I'm the person that he randomly proposed to. So it kind of seemed like she was taking it kind of funny at first, but then she dragged him to hell. Luckily, even though she deleted the tweets, they live on in screenshots, so we can read them forever and ever. Faithful sources like Jenna Amatuli tweeted them and shared them. She wrote the caption, mic drop. So Ariana wrote, she said, for somebody who claims to hate relevancy, you sure love clinging to it, huh? And then she said, thank you, next. Okay, it's all right. Best Ariana okay, I feel like I'm neutral in this debate between the two of them. Uh, I feel like I can see both. We've all been like when your friends have broken up and you have to choose sides, and I want, I want them both to do well. He's a comedian, he's gonna make jokes, right? He's gonna make jokes. 
but she is also like fresh. She got a fresh wound here. They just broke up, right? And this maybe you can understand where she's coming from. Yeah, I mean, I think that people were taking it a little too, too seriously. I mean. I think people were jumping on her being like, how dare you, you wrote a song about him, he can like use his art to talk about you. And I mean, that's not really the point. I mean, she, he can say whatever he wants, she can say whatever she wants. You know, I think she wanted to speak out and she did. Well, I mean, there's people going to choose their sides and I just hope, can't we all just be friends, please? Yeah. No. <laughs> no, never, David. Okay, Twitter, we want to hear from you. What's the shadiest way you ever dragged an ex? Let us know using the hashtag AM2DM. I, I wish I had a good story here. I will say I did subtweet someone the other day. They know who they are, and they're gonna if they go back through my old tweets, they will find out. But I, I, I have. Was it a coworker? No, it wasn't a coworker. It was someone. No, nope. That's it. Okay, we're moving on. Here's a tweet from BuzzFeed News tech reporter Ryan Mack. This woman stepped up to the mic at the Google Walkout event in Mountain View. She is a barista and told a story of how someone came to the counter one day and commented on her red lipstick. Nice lipstick, the person said. Lick your lips for me. That's disgusting. Google employees orchestrated a global walkout yesterday to protest how the company paid and protected a former executive accused of sexual misconduct. Now, our reporter Caroline O'Donovan first broke the news of the walkout protest and she joins us now live from San Francisco. Caroline, good morning. Hi, how's it going? Good. Not nice and early there. Thanks for getting up. Yeah, it's pretty dark out. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so what was the mood like of the protest you attended? Sure. It started off uh, a little bit somber, you know, kind of quiet. And then over the hour or so of speeches, you know, employees sharing their own stories of things that had happened to them. And in some cases, sharing the stories of people who were afraid that there would be retaliation if they got up in stage and shared their own stories. So people read them for them. Uh, there was more chanting. And, and by the end of it, I actually saw a couple of Google employees in tears. Well, you were mentioning the stories there. What kind of stories were, were people sharing? Sure. I heard a lot of stories along the lines of, I was sexually harassed at work, but uh, it was my manager and I was afraid that I wouldn't get promoted or, or there could be retaliation in my job if I reported it. Or I did report it and HR did an investigation, but it was inconclusive and I was asked to continue to work with this person for three more months. And, you know, I cried in my car before work every day. It was, it was things along that line. Yeah, there was a really powerful quote in your piece that said, I feel like I'm leading young boys and girls to the slaughter. Super, super mm -hmm. powerful. And I think that's important to note, right? We're not only, these people are not only protesting for the current workers yeah. in tech, but also the future workers in tech, correct, right? Sure. I think, you know, Me Too has come to a lot of industries, but tech is, is growing. It's a huge industry, lots of money there. It's, it's where a lot of people see their careers headed, right? People in college right now. And I think there's a certain anxiety that, uh, although Google is obviously a prestige company, right? It's extremely hard to get a job there. The culture, once you are there, might not be what people expect. Well, give us the, the details here. How many people participated over there in uh, San Fran Mountain View and how many officers or Google officers around the world took part in this protest? Sure. So I was at the uh, walkout in Mountain View, California, where Google's headquarters are. I personally saw hundreds of people participating. That courtyard was totally packed. Um, there were also protests in New York City and San Francisco. I think somewhere up, uh, upwards of 20 campuses all around the world, you know, Tokyo, Singapore. 
Um, the official count from the organizers is 17,000 Google employees walked out of their jobs yesterday. I wow. you know, can't confirm that, but that's what the organizers are saying. Uh, it does certainly help that Google CEO Sundar Pichai sent out an email saying there wouldn't be any retaliation for participating. Uh, so I think that probably you know helps some people feel like they, they actually could get up and, and stand up and go outside for an hour or so. Um, but that, that's a lot of employees. I want to back up just a little bit. So I feel like the story has been simmering for a while, but this is a lot of a lot of people's first times hearing about it with this huge walkout protest. So can you back up a little bit and talk a little bit about the situation that led to this protest and the mess that Google's in right now? Sure. Yeah. So last week, the New York Times uh, published an investigation into sexual misconduct inside of Google. Uh, their story talks about four different executives, one of whom was paid a $90 million payout after it was confirmed by an internal investigation that he had indeed um, sexually harassed a coworker of his. There are three other individuals named in that story. Um, and I think although some of the details, you know, I've talked to employees who said, I knew some of these things already, details about how much some of these men were paid, details about the fact that even in consensual relationships, when those relationships ended, the male executives uh, were, you know, able to stay at Google and build careers while the women who were involved ended up having to leave the company, things like that um, were new. And, and so in some cases, the details were entirely new to employees who hadn't been at Google as long. So I think that's sort of what uh, kicked this whole thing off. I think you also have to look at two two things that have been going on contextually. One, of course, is the national Me Too movement. Lots of industries um, have been addressing workplace sexual harassment and assault over the last year or so. Um, and so I think that in a way that's changed the context for tech workers when they're talking about this kind of thing. And then also internally at Google, we've seen uh, more employee activism over the last year around things like uh, a, a Google contract with the uh, Pentagon over drone warfare technology that's called Project Maven. A dozen Googlers quit their jobs in protest saying they don't want to build that kind of technology. And Google did agree to cancel uh, that contract going forward. There's also a Chinese search product called Dragonfly that some employees were frustrated about because uh, if launched, it could potentially hew to censorship laws in China, which is an ethical issue for some Googlers. So they presented management with petitions, uh, you know, demanding more oversight into ethics and transparency. So there's definitely been something growing and changing mounting inside of Google with employees. And I think because of that setup, uh, when this news broke, even though some of it had already been, been published before and some people were aware of it internally, there was sort of a spark there. Well, troubling times at Google. Caroline, thank you so much for your continued reporting on this story. Thank you, guys. Well, here's a tweet from BuzzFeed News reporter Melissa Segura. At a time where internet hate is front and center, a look at how a page that was meant to support Chicago police devolved into a repository of hate. And Melissa wrote a story about this Facebook page along with BuzzFeed News' John Templon and Craig Silverman. Craig joins us now. Craig, good morning. Morning. Craig, what sort of uh, rhetoric were we seeing on this page? Well, there were, there were a lot of comments in some cases coming from people who are uh, active duty Chicago police officers. Um, you know, for example, there was a, a video of uh, a black woman being beaten by a police officer and there was a comment from someone who said, uh, you know, uh, shoot the rhino. Um, there were people talking about things like ghetto lottery, um, a lot of references to thugs and other things. So, so really, you know, objectionable racist comments that were made on the page. So is this group really made up of all former police officers or is this the kind of thing where the group was started with the intention of actually being a support group and it's been infiltrated by, 
you know, right wing or racist people? Well, so the, the the page itself was started by a guy named Gary Snow, who's who you know who's a Chicago native, um, and his his motivation that he told us and that he declares on the page is he's really just trying to support the Chicago Police Department. Um, so it's not officially affiliated with the police department, um, but Gary Snow himself, you know, if you can look on his personal Facebook profile and other things he's posted over the years, and and some of these comments are in lines with with things that he said. And so it has attracted a community around it of people who are supporters of the police, of people who make these often really objectionable and racist comments. And there are also current duty and former Chicago police officers who also participate and comment on the page. Now, Craig, this is coming at a time when uh, race relations with the Chicago PD are already fraught, thanks to some pretty high-profile cases there. Uh, What has the Chicago PD had to say about this, these horrendous comments that are on this page? Uh, so the Chicago Police Department did not respond to us. Um, we asked them for comments. Uh, so we, did, we didn't get a comment from them. You know, they do have a social media policy for their officers. Um, and, and it says that, uh, quote, content, they shouldn't be posting content that is, quote, disparaging to a person or group based on race, religion, sexual orientation, or any other protected class. And so we asked them about these comments and they did not get back to us. Are any of the people pushing back against this, like trying to clean up the page or be like, hey guys, this is supposed to be a place where we can all come together and support each other, or is it just a total dumpster trash fire? <laughs> you know, there, there is a little bit of uh, encouraging news on that front. It really seems like in recent months, there have been people posting on the page, really trying to, to sound a more you know unifying tone. Um, but there are also people who are posting on the page, really criticizing some of the content that is being posted by the page of men, Gary Snow himself, but also by other commenters. So, so there's, you know, there's some pushback that's happening. There are some people who often, you know, will, who are participants in the page who are kind of pushing back on some of the, the more heated rhetoric and racist stuff that's there. So there's almost in some ways a little bit of a, a back and forth taking place that wasn't there months ago where the content was, was even worse at that point. Yeah, so this Gary Snow guy, he's an interesting figure, and you go into this a little bit in your story. We won't get into the whole thing, but he's this right-wing guy who has started a lot. He spreads a lot of the really horrible memes we see on Facebook. So is he starting these groups just to draw in this rhetoric to this group or this, you know, make it seem like, you know, Chicago police are really racist or like what is his goal here in doing this? You know, he, he is an, uh, an absolute supporter of the police department. So for him, you know, this, this page is there to really speak up for the police. And what, what he told us is that, you know, police officers have some restrictions around what they can do and say. And so he feels like someone like him needs to stand up for what's going on. So he's, he's genuine in that support. Um, and, it's, and it's just attracted people and in some of the content that he posts as well that, that really, you know, brings forward these kinds of comments and things like that. And so this is the community that has gravitated towards what he's been doing. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> I mean, it's such a, like, uh, what a mess. Because, yeah, like, total mess. It doesn't help society when there's already divisions that are between, like, cops and the, you know, the black community in Chicago that the people are going on Facebook. Like, social media is real life, and if you're saying these things on social media, you should be afraid. Anyway, thank you, Craig. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, well, I can't believe it. It seems like 2016 was only yesterday, but the midterms... Does it? Does it? Yeah, it, I, I don't know. It feels like 15 years, but it also feels like five <laughs> seconds. The midterms are next Tuesday, though. So excited. Vote. Vote. And David, you are going to be leading us all through it. 
on an AM to DM election special. That's it's right. Very exciting. The AM to PM we are now. We're going to be doing election to DM. results show. PM to DM. PM to DM. All right, fair enough. Uh, we have uh, we've, we did a few of these throughout the primary season, but this is the big one. We've got Catherine Miller, obviously political editor. Brandon Finnegan back from Decision Desk HQ. Decision Desk obviously calling races live as the results come in. So we will be making calls on the show on Tuesday night. It's going to be a big one. We're starting at seven. I don't think they're letting me out of the studio for maybe eight hours or something. It's going to be interesting. Let's see what happens. Are you guys going to be taking shots every time we call a race and uh, BuzzFeed political video, live video of of maybe, the past. Maybe on, uh, <laughs> maybe after like the witching hour, 11 o'clock, we'll see what the mood takes us. But anyway, it's going to be exciting, so please tune in uh, on 7pm on Tuesday night. But on today's show of AM to DM, the real AM to DM, we're going to see more of the guys' road trip. They're on another one right now, but we're going to see their last one. And Sarah Paxton from The Front Runner is here. But up next, it's Fire Tweets. Stay tuned. Hi, welcome back. I'm already seeing a tweet from uh, Kirsten Baptiste. I may tune into the election show so I have a place to express my shade. That's what we're here for. Yeah. We want to give you a place to vent. It's been a horrible, long election yeah. season, and that's what we're here for. So do tune in. Yeah, and then it's, guess very, what? it's very similar. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, no, but it's right. very similar to this show, which the show would not be what it is without your guys' comments and your tweets and your feedback. So we want and that. we want this to be your show, too, where you're all responding, giving us updates, letting us know what you're seeing in the races yeah. locally for you. This is supposed to be an interactive thing. So we, we definitely want, want everyone who's interested Tune off all the boring cable news and yeah. stuff and pay attention to us. <laughs> we can promise you no panels of pundits. It's not that kind of show. Anyway, I'm excited. Here we go. Tweets. Let's do it. NYE Ema, imagine Oprah shows up at your door and your house is dirty. I think I had a nightmare about this last night. It's a dirty house. <laughs> <laughs> I would, it's like, oh, hey, Oprah. I wear like going? my sweatpants or like my pajamas. And, I and Oprah's not. like social media person's like filming you. It's no, like, thanks. oh, shit. I would die. No, <laughs> okay. As great tweeted, New York is a great place to have a horrible day because you can cry in public and literally no one knows. Have you done the cry in public? I haven't, but with Halloween obviously lately, there have been some crazy people dressed on the train and no one says anything in New York. You just kind of look down and like no one's just, I love that about the city. It's really funny. Have you cried on a train? Yeah, I, I really, I'm not a huge crier. I really only cry when I'm really overwhelmed and stressed. And so that happens on trains frequently because you're like running late for something. Of course, yeah. So yeah, that happens to me like, I would say once every few months. And it's great because everyone, I, I actually was really stressed a few weeks ago and I was on a train and I just started like silent tearing. And the guy next to me looked like, he was like probably like my dad's age, looked really concerned but didn't say anything, which I really, really appreciated. Oh my so gosh. thank you. New York. Shout out Love to that it. guy. Here we go. Mature audiences only, everyone, where am I looking, Frank? Everyone doesn't get the same version of me. One person might tell you I'm a good person, and the other person might tell you I ain't shit. Believe them both, I act accordingly. As you just saw with me harassing our stage manager for pointing yeah, me at the wrong camera Frank. just then. Sorry, no. Wow, David. Sorry, all right. Wow, David. <laughs> Moving on. What's happening here? Well, then, church. My mom calls me spoiled like it was some mysterious invisible witch that spoiled me and not her. Yeah, mom. I feel like this was the girl who <sighs> had like the t-shirts in elementary school that said like spoiled on them. And, like, Princess, yeah. Stones. My mom would never buy that for me. <laughs> All right, here we go. 
I love this one. Friend of the show, Chrissy Teigen. This is literally just a graph proving people uh, had to Google your dumb ass to figure out who you are. This is Chrissy dragging Jacob Wall, that guy who was pushing the Mueller conspiracy theory. Who, and like, he, it went to his mom's house? It went to his mom, mom's phone, yeah, that's right. And he was like, oh, she said, what, what, was, what happened with him? And he tweeted her, I was more famous than you, and, like, tweeted a Google screenshot of his name of the search history, and she just completely shut him down. I can't... Imagine being owned by Chrissy Teigen. And he's only 20, right? He's 20. He's 20. But Chrissy, oh, yeah. please own me. That's uh, I'm just ready. I'm taking, yeah. <laughs> All right, are you ready for the tweet of the Let's day? Let's do it. Here we go. Tweet of the day comes from Assad. Baby shark is like sicko mode for babies. <laughs> That's all, that's all she wrote. Okay, that's all I can sing. Stick Grandma. around. We still have the latest road trip segment to come. But up next, we go live from the district. Stay tuned. Welcome back. We're going live from the district with BuzzFeed News White House correspondent, Tarini Party. Good morning. Happy Friday, Tarini. Happy Friday, guys. Tarini, I gotta know, are you Team P or Team Ariana? <laughs> <laughs> so I think this is going to be an unpopular opinion, but I think Team Pete, but just in this very specific instance. Explain yourself. I get it. I, get it. <laughs> I mean, I, he was just, he was doing his job. It's yes. his job to be relevant and funny, and he was being self-deprecating in a way. I don't know. I think we can let this one slide. I, I totally agree. And All you right. know that Lauren is probably like, more Ariana jokes, they go viral. <laughs> <laughs> all right. But we'll all, we'll all be friends, like I said. Here's a tweet from BuzzFeed News. Trump says he wants U.S. troops to shoot anyone from the caravan of Central Americans who throws a rock at authorities because, quote, there's not much difference between a stone and a gun. Uh, okay, Tarini, you're going to have to explain this comment to us. What exactly was the context here? So the president had made a speech yesterday on, quote, the immigration crisis. And when he was asked about why he was deploying these troops to the border and whether or not they would be firing at uh, the caravan that's approaching the U.S., the president said that, you know, hopefully they won't have to. But then he went on and pointed out that, um, you know, if they throw stones at, uh, at, these, at, at the troops, then they might have to fire because he tried to equate stones with guns. Where is he giving this info, or is this just something that he's coming up with on the top of his head? Has there been any in instances where we've seen actual stone throwing? So the president seems to be referring to this one incident um, at the Guatemalan border where a few members of the caravan threw some stones at the Mexican authorities who were trying to keep them from crossing the border. So it seems that he's referring to this one very small, uh, specific incident and um, kind of using that to talk about, um, you know, how these, uh, how the men in this caravan are, very, are the angry mob, you know, using that um, incident to really make these people seem like um, they're much more dangerous than they actually are. And Tarini, Trump's been trying to turn the focus to immigration as we get towards Tuesday's election. But what specifically did he announce yesterday? What, what, what was the policy news? So there wasn't much policy news, but the president did say that there's going to be an executive order coming up that's going to have some changes to the asylum process. Um, they're going to force um, asylum seekers to go through a port of entry. Um, so that was essentially it. But they, we didn't get any really real specifics on what this executive order would include. So you were also at the rally that Trump did last night. What was his rhetoric like there? Was it a lot of heavy immigration stuff as well? 
The president continued to talk about immigration at the rally yesterday. It really seems to be a big part of his closing argument, uh, telling his supporters to be afraid of these migrants that are um, making their way over to the U.S. Um, and he continued that last night when he was um, there to support Josh Hawley, who's uh, the, the Republican running against Claire McCaskill in Missouri, which is a state that the president won by about 20 points. Uh, I want to talk about this race in Missouri a little bit, Tarini, because this we were remembering this morning that Claire McCaskill won her race uh, in 2012, right, against, what was his name? Todd Aiken. Todd Aiken, who... Todd Aiken. TBT. Whose, <laughs> whose political career imploded, right, when he said uh, that... If, the, the, if he talked about legitimate rape, if you remember, yeah, right? Legit, the, the, he's the, the legitimate rape guy. The, the body, gonna yeah, know what we're talking that's about. It. Yeah. So, and I, it felt like that was the end. He couldn't possibly come back from that. But now, do you think today, given all the rhetoric we're seeing today, a comment like that would even make a blip in the news cycle? Yeah, that's definitely a blast from the past. I mean, those feel like innocent times, honestly. I mean, <coughs> right at this point, um, I, I really think if a candidate said something along those lines in this in Trump era, um, they might not face the kind of repercussions that Todd Aiken did when, you know, the whole entire Republican Party distanced themselves uh, from him. I mean, I guess looking at Roy Moore as an example, even though the National Republican uh, Senatorial Committee said they wouldn't uh, spend any money on, on his race, the president still supported him and other outside groups did. So I think we're just in an entirely different political environment right now. Yeah, it was definitely a weird thing to remember this morning thinking about that and how <laughs> abrupt it was that the race went from something that was hotly contested. Yeah. It was really unclear if Claire McCaskill was going to hold on to her seat. And then when that happened, she basically coasted into re-election. And now here we are all these mm -hmm. years later, and she's in another really hotly contested race. So what are her chances looking like right now? The race is, has been tied in, you know, poll after poll. Uh, it's very unclear, you know, which way it's going to go. Uh, but the, the but the dynamics of the state, as I said, the president won the state by about 20 points. Um, you know, he still has, um, you know, he's still very popular in the state. And we're seeing Claire McCaskill sort of struggle to uh, get those Trump voters to come out and support her. And she's actually been very supportive of the president's um, immigration views uh, recently. She's been talking about how the president is 100% right in how he's been talking about the caravan. So that's one way she's trying to sort of uh, get her, get those Trump voters to come out and support her. Yeah. Well, uh, Tarini, as always, it's a pleasure being nostalgic with you and thinking about different times. <laughs> uh, thank you very much for joining us. That's something I feel like. Thanks, guys. That's something I feel like we don't see that much, like Democrats going towards Trump or yeah. like moving towards Trump's rhetoric to try yep. and get voters, but I wonder if it's something... Every state see. is different, right? Yeah, I wonder if it's yeah. something we're going to see even more coming yeah. up. All right, well, here's a tweet from BuzzFeed News' Chris Geidner. It's tough to go through what's happened, what's going on now, and what's next in the Mueller investigation without looking like Charlie from Always Sunny. Here's my attempt at breaking it all down. That's a great reference, Chris. Well, Chris joins us now to help break it down and help us all feel a little bit less like Charlie. Good morning, Chris. <laughs> Good morning, all. So are you, Where's your whiteboard? Yeah, so are you Charlie right now? Yeah. <laughs> it's actually over there. We've got it. Don't okay. worry. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> okay, so first and foremost, why are the midterms stopping Mueller from making any moves? 
So they're, they're, they're not technically stopping him, but there's a long-standing, informal, unwritten Justice Department policy that, uh, that prosecutors won't take overt steps in investigations that could have political ramifications in the 60 days before an election. And so with something like Mueller, a lot of people uh, have, have said, well, like, well, Roger Stone, who's like a focus of what Mueller's looking at, like he's not on the ballot, so why does it matter? I mean, obviously when you're dealing with an investigation so closely linked to the President of the United States, any new major indictments, especially of Americans, uh, would would clearly upend the 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 campaign cycle. And so I think that Mueller has just decided that we'll continue doing things behind the scenes, but like now is not the time to break into the public. We all remember what happened when uh, former FBI director Jim Comey issued that letter in the, the days before the 2016 election talking about reopening the investigation into Hillary Clinton's emails and the criticism he got for that. I was just about to bring that up, Chris. I thought, yeah, you said long-standing practice at the DOJ, and I was wondering if Hillary Clinton might have some thoughts on that. But Chris, do you have a... <laughs> do, do, it's always hard to read the tea leaves with uh, Mueller's team because it's so tight-lipped. But you mentioned Roger Stone. Now, I'm wondering, is that the sense of where the investigation is going? Is that where it's focused on at the moment? I mean, there have been a lot of people associated with Roger Stone who have appeared before the grand jury. Um, several uh, people who worked for him, people who are associated with him, um, people who haven't appeared before the grand jury, who we know have been speaking with Mueller's office, have have uh, there have been reports that they have been asked about Roger Stone's interactions um, from from Steve Bannon, who was running the campaign at points to Jerome Corsi, who uh, was the, the DC Bureau Chief of InfoWars. Um, and he, he's actually sort of become a, a key figure in what appears to be Mueller's focus on Roger Stone um, due to uh, communications that he had with Stone and communications that they then had with the campaign uh, regarding WikiLeaks, regarding uh, the timing of, of when things were going to be coming out, and, and really leading Mueller, I think, to believe that this is worth his time to see if uh, if they can find out that sort of the in that the campaign was given uh, to to it, that the campaign actually was given information that they would know that emails were going to be coming right. out ahead of time. Right. I feel like so, I feel like on Twitter or maybe in the news and stuff, there's a lot of people who are always speculating like the Mueller investigation is always o almost over and yeah. it's about to wrap up. But investigations like this could last for years. So why do you think there's all this speculation? Do you think people just are trying to keep it in the news or do we have any information on that? I, I think that there are a lot of people who are uh, hoping that it will wrap up quickly. Um, and so, I, 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 I mean, <laughs> yeah. Uh, what's his name? What, what, what was John Barron yeah. has been uh, calling around to people. Um, I mean, uh, I, I mean, 
I think I think that Mueller has made clear that he wants to move quickly, that he does understand that the more time that this is going on, um, that, that that isn't good for the country. Um, but he also is a careful prosecutor, and he's certainly not going to stop before he feels like he's uh, found out everything he needs to find out. Well, it just seems like it's dragging on and on, but hopefully we'll have some sort of resolution soon, right? We appreciate you coming on, Chris, to walk us through. Well, I mean, it's, it's been going on a long time, but I mean, it's important to note that, like, if you look through my story, like, there, there have been major developments at every point, and just in the, the past two, three months, um, Mueller's team has support and interviews with Paul Manafort and with uh, Michael Cohen, who is the president's lawyer and one of the people who ran the campaign. So he's getting major new information uh, that will help him sort of move forward the investigation as he as he's able to do. Move yeah, forward. so he's definitely yeah. he's making headway. I think that's yeah. an important thing to know. Especially, yeah. yeah. But we're going to see more after the midterm. So thank you, Chris. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, guys. Up next, Amber got to chat with Aquamarine herself, Sarah Paxton, TBD to everyone who remembers that movie. <laughs> Plus, Isaac and Saeed go to Columbus, Ohio, so stay tuned. Here's a tweet from the Daily Beast, Swin Subasang. God damn it, is the Gary Hunt movie gonna try to make us feel guilty for covering sex scandals of public figures? Joining me to help answer that question is actor, is actor Sarah Paxton, who plays Donna Rice in the new film, The Front Runner, about the scandal that rocked the 1988 Democratic primary. Thanks for joining us, Sarah. Thanks for having me. I'm thrilled you're here. <laughs> so the film focuses on this primary where um, Gary Hart had to resign from the race due to um, an affair he was having uh, with Donna Rice. How much did you know about Gary Hart and Donna Rice before the film? Um, it, it's, it's interesting, actually, because I, I did know a little bit about the story, even though I was being born while this was happening, <laughs> yeah. so I don't have any actual like memories or recollections. You're like, I was in uterus, yeah. so I remember it very well. <laughs> I was a fetus. Yeah. It was a tough time. Um, <laughs> but I had been listening to this podcast called Radio Lab a couple mm -hmm. years before um, I got the script, and the episode was about Gary Hart and the scandal and, and Donna Rice and everything that happened, and I thought it was really fascinating. I thought the story was... It was just so interesting to me that not a lot of people were talking about this this moment in our history and that I didn't know about it previously. And um, then I got the script for the movie and I was really excited because I was familiar and uh, I saw that I was going to be auditioning to play Donna Rice. And um, I was really curious to see how they were going to portray Donna because I think it could you know, go a few different ways and I was really I was just so excited that um, the version of Donna that they had written was with, you know, dignity and respect, and she wasn't just like this caricature, like one-dimensional person that she sort of had been portrayed as 30 years ago. Well, and after all this happened, Donna Rice went on to sort of work in public policy as an advocate for internet safety. Did you meet with her or speak with her about about the role? I didn't. It's well. Did you want to? I did want to. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I I still want to. I haven't met her yet. I haven't mm. spoken to her. I would love to. But when I, before we started filming the movie, I was talking about it with Jason, and mm -hmm. we decided that I wasn't seeking to like mimic her mm -hmm. or do an impersonation of her in any way. Um, I really just wanted to 
you know, capture the empathy of this woman in this situation. And I just used the script as my roadmap. It was all there for me. I mean, I did, I did do as much research as I, as I could on her. Mm -hmm. um, there wasn't a whole, whole lot out there from that time, I think because, you know, the internet, it wasn't as prevalent as it is now, obviously. Um, but I read the book that the film was based off of All the Truth is Out by Matt Bai, and that, it was, that was amazing. There was just so much in there. Well, it's funny, you mentioned a little bit about the sort of the script had the empathy in there. Obviously, in the sort of last few years, particularly with kind of the Me Too movement and various things, we've been sort of re-examining how people um, like, uh, you know, Monica Lewinsky and Mary Jo Kopechne have been kind of portrayed in the media. And what did it mean to you to kind of humanize Donna Rice? Well, I mean... <sighs> I felt it was. It's really. It's really intimidating to. I, I, I felt like I had this really big responsibility, yeah. you know, because I am portraying the darkest moment of her life, you know, and um, and she's she's alive. She can watch a performance, and um, I had never played a, a real person before, mm. and so yeah, it was really intimidating, and it felt like a really big responsibility to sort of to do to do that justice. Um, and I heard, but Jason told me that she's one of the first people that he showed the movie to, and that she loved it. Phew. Yeah, I know. <laughs> she loved it, and she was happy with my performance, and mm. so that, that's, I mean, that's just like the most gratifying thing mm. that I could hear, because she's the critic that I was the most, the most worried about. The toughest review of all, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So, so I'm happy. <laughs> Did working on the film make you change your mind at all at how politicians should have a private life and what the media could kind of cover? Did that, did that change? It's tough because, uh, I mean, I feel like I have, if anything, more questions mm. than ever before. Because, like what? Well, uh, you know, I think that part of what's so great about this movie is that there, it's not... It, it doesn't, like, take a hard... It's not making, like, a hard point, you know? Mm -hmm. um, it... It really just it asks the questions of the audience and it and puts them up for debate for for them to decide and to discuss amongst themselves. I think that's really great. Like you go to the movies and it starts this conversation. Not everyone's going to feel the same way. And I learned a lot while I was working on this, um, particularly about you know how the news cycle has changed so much. I mean, by the time I was you know like I said I was I was a fetus, <laughs> um, but by the time I was even like cognizant of the of the news, it sort of already was like in that twenty four hour news cycle, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and I, even though I, I was obviously aware that like people used to get their news from like the paper hitting the stands and right. sort of like wait for it. I just I didn't know how much it had changed and how this time period really was that moment when it flipped. I didn't know that this was when, you know, the invention of like the satellite news van right. came about and, and and reporters were getting satellite phones and so for the first time ever they could sort of report from wherever they were and and uh, that was really interesting really interesting to learn and not only that but while we were filming sort of the landscape was changing beneath our feet mm -hmm. as well and so yeah I, I and it keeps changing every day constantly so I, I have I don't have the answers. Well, then it makes the film feel very current uh, as well. It does. So one thing I wanted to ask you is Hugh Jackman plays Gary Hart in the film. Mm -hmm. Everyone always says he's delightful and so wonderful to work with. But what's the real debt? What's he really like? It's true. <laughs> I mean, it's so true. He's really one of the nicest people that I've ever met. Just 
in life. He's um, so professional and like positive and upbeat, and he genuinely makes every single person feel like they're his they're his friend. And um, then he turns around and delivers this like really powerful performance. Right. And that's really impressive. I've, I've learned a lot from working with him. Well, one of the things I love in the film is your hair. Um, you have like, it's a very 80s vibe. Yeah. Do you have any 80s style icons? Um, 80s style icons. Okay, well, I gotta say, I'm not quite sure what date, this <laughs> what year this movie came out, but. We'll Google. But, Overboard, mm. Goldie Hawn on the boat, the bathing oh, suits, I know what the you glasses, mean. That's, that's the 80s. hair, that's 80s. Yeah. I think it's like late 80s, but that's sort of like my go-to. You were giving me Olivia Newton-John vibes. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, that hair. Um, well, my, I, they gave me like a real 80s haircut. Mm. So I had like just like two shelves cut into my head <laughs> for like a year. But I'm well, excited. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us. I really thank appreciate you. your discussion today. Um, of course, The Front Runner comes out November 21st, and more AM to DM is up next. Get in, loser. We're going tweeting. Ha-ha! It's fine. Let's take a selfie. Did you just get four, four for four? <laughs> what a bargain! All right, thanks, man. Are we there yet? Isaac, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Saeed, this is not driving Miss Ferocity. AM2 Seabus, brought to you by Wendy's 4 for 4 Me. Next stop, OH. Oh! Okay, are we getting on or getting off? Uh, you just gotta tell me, are we getting on or getting off? Getting off this next exit. This right here? Are you backseat navigating? You, are you trying to come for my <laughs> Stay on! Danny, I appreciate you. Good morning, Columbus OH. I am. We're gonna be making the most of a city that frankly is already making the most of itself. It's lovely! It is lovely and so nice. They say, say hello to you on the street. I feel my theme for how I would like to make the most of our time here in Columbus is just kind of like being open to the charmingness, the yeah. Midwestness. I wanna make the most of the mood. Yeah! Make the most of the mood. And we're going to North Market and this is one of the largest and oldest farmer's market in central Ohio. Oh, okay. We are here with Megan. Tell us about this place. I'm the director of communications here, and we manage and operate the historic North Market. We've actually been in existence since 1876. Oh, wow. What? Mm -hmm. okay. <laughs> How can we make the most of being at the market this morning? I would suggest coming here on a Saturday morning. Okay. A lot of our merchants here operate seven days a week, and they bring out their best products on Saturdays. We also have our outdoor farmer's market. A lot of it is driven by farms, and they all bring different offerings. So we have a specific farmer that sells eggs. They bring their little hens. They're our little buddies. We look forward to seeing them every weekend. So Saeed is like very enamored by Columbus. I think he's already looking at real estate. What do you love about living in Columbus, Ohio? I feel like Columbus has the best of a big city and a small town. You can walk down the street and see people that you know, but also you can be in a major city downtown living. It's just a wonderful best of the both worlds. All right, girl. He's moving. He <laughs> might be talking to a new neighbor. <laughs> Sounds good. I love it. 
It's game day. It's football, baby. And we are going to go tailgating at Ohio State University. I said, I am hungry, and I am not waiting. You can't even wait till we're actually at the tailgate. Mm -hmm. Tastes like game day. What do you think would happen if I shouted OH? Everybody would say IO. Should I go for it? Sure. OH! Oh, oh my God, that was amazing! <laughs> Gentlemen, cheers. Cheers. Go Buckeyes. Oh, wait. I.O. There we go. Well, first of all, this is the most incredible tailgating party I've ever seen. There's air conditioning. Exactly. It's amazing. They have Sauvignon Blanc. Oh, yeah. And it's an open-on bar. Okay. And, and Scarlet and Gay. Correct. That's the group. This is the first gay tailgating group that we have encountered. What does it mean to you to have a space here? It's amazing. High State's very diverse. We've been the welcome with open arms. But in a way, it's even more powerful to see because you're here with all different kinds of alumni organizations, literally all just side by side. Right. So. Columbus is lit! Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I found my exactly. people. Yeah. I you absolutely it. love Columbus. Woo! <laughs> Woo! Burn rubber, Carmen! Let's do the Columbus Woo! Zoo, baby! <laughs> Camels! Oh my gosh, hello! hello. Is that a bear? Yeah, oh, not a bear. Oh. She's thick. <laughs> I see flamingos. Why do they stand on one leg? Are we flamingos? Can you mistake us doing? for flamingos? Do we? Okay. Good. Welcome to the, welcome to the zoo. It. This zoo is huge. This zoo is fun. Oh, what do we got here? Oh, oh my God. Polar bears. Look at how big that nose is. Look at the face. Wow. I feel like I went to church. <laughs> We're about to see Jack Hanna. Um, obviously he's an animal icon. I mean, we've grown up loving him. He also happens to be the director emeritus of the Columbus Zoo and Aquarium. You've never been kissed by a giraffe. Oh my gosh. Holy <laughs> <laughs> So Jack, let me ask, how many years have you been at the Columbus Zoo? 40 years. 40, 40 years. years, that's incredible. What does it mean to you to be a part of Columbus, to be a part of this community, to be a part well, of the city? Columbus has done several things. Number one, they've saved my daughter's life. Julie had leukemia, brain tumors, all sorts of stuff. And so St. Jude said, Jack, we've done everything we can. They gave me three cities to choose from. And I chose Columbus, Ohio. Right about the time I get here, guess what? They're looking for a zoo director. It's been incredible to the Hannah family. My dad, before he passed away, said four words, love what you do. And now look what the, look what the people of Columbus have built. And I come in here sometimes by myself at nighttime and walk through here and, and um, can't believe it. I can't believe it. The giraffe just breathed on me. <laughs> you want to feed him by mouth then? Sure. Yeah, no, 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 I do. You I do. do. Oh, mouth? Yes. Yeah. So just like this? You try it back here. Oh, okay. Aww. That's very good. Thank you. Thank you, sir. I have had such a wonderful time. Everybody is so nice. Every city has been great, but I have to say, Columbus, I just fell in love. The message that Columbus gives me is one of home. And it's this establishment of the idea of you belong here. Yep. Welcome. That's it's such a welcoming city. But now, Chicago, baby. All right, Chi-Town. Chi-Town, get down. Coming for you. A tweet from Dr. Elizabeth Yuko, health editor at She Knows. Time for your friendly reminder that a woman's success slash failure doesn't depend on whether or not she has children. 
That's very, very true. Elizabeth joins us now to talk about her article, which says what single women who froze their eggs wish fertility clinics had told them. Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, thank you for having me. So obviously freezing your eggs is something that I hear about all the time. It's a huge topic among women of late 20s, early 30s age, because a lot of women are putting off having children because they want to grow in their careers. But this is kind of the prime time for us to be, you know, having babies. So egg freezing is looked at as an alternative to that. There's even companies offering this as a benefit. But there's a new study out in the Journal of Human Fertility about the reasons why some women decide to free their eggs. Is that why a lot of women are doing it? Um, so this study looked at social freezing specifically, um, which yeah refers to putting off having children because of a career or just not finding a good partner, uh, as opposed to medical freezing, which would be like someone going through uh, cancer treatments who want to save their eggs. Uh, and the main reason that women in this study said that they decided to do social egg freezing is that they didn't want to do something called panic parenting, which is a term coined by one of the authors, uh, meaning that you didn't just kind of get to a certain age and think, oh God, I need to have my own biological children, I need to find any partner that'll do, and then end up getting with somebody who might not be suitable for you or ideal uh, to have a relationship with. So I think um, that's a real phenomenon. Oh, absolutely. It's 100% a real phenomenon. And yeah. it's something where, you know, unfortunately, like our biology has not caught up with our society in the sense that our prime childbearing years are in our late, or early to mid 20s right. but a lot of women aren't really in the point where they are able to or wanting to have children until you know their fertility has really declined right and like I said like I think Google Facebook are now offering this to women yep. as a perk so it's a really trendy thing right now but is it actually something a lot of more women are doing or is it just something that we're hearing about a lot in the news we're definitely hearing about it more in the news and I think that's a good thing and the authors of the study also uh, Someone argued that as well, that unlike the first women who did this 10, 15 years ago, uh, we now know more about success and failure rates, which was the other big point of the article. Um, that being that a lot of the women didn't feel like the clinics were fully open with them and transparent in terms of success rates. Um, and success rates for egg freezing could be everything from just doing it and having that peace of mind that you took pro a proactive step to uh, successful thawed eggs to a live pregnancy. And uh, the success rates change by age. And yeah, the women in the study kind of thought that they weren't given the adequate information to make a decision. Is that because egg freezing is so lucrative? Uh, it is definitely a business, and so that's one of these things where as a bioethicist and a woman in my mid-30s, I'm about to hit that, or I think I've passed my uh, fertility peak, um, yeah, it's definitely something that I think about because, it, yeah, it's a, it's a business. It's um, Whether it's a fertility clinic that specializes in uh, IVF and semen samples as well or something, there's a few now that just do egg freezing exclusively. Yeah, they are, at the end of the day, they do need to make money. Um, having said that, there are definitely places that do better uh, jobs than others at explaining the risks and benefits. Um, but yeah, because this is uh, a, you know, a treatment that you're, you don't necessarily need for health reasons, it, yeah, we have to make a decision as a consumer. Yeah, you mentioned that women said that they wish they had known that the success rates may not be 
you know, as maybe high or maybe it might be more complicated than they originally thought. I think people think if you're going to put all this time and money into freezing your eggs, as soon as you unthaw them, they will become a baby. Right. Um, yeah. But what are some of the other things that women talked about? Because egg retrieval, no matter what, if you're doing it for anything, is pretty hard on your body, right? Yes, absolutely. And the women in the study talked about how uh, egg retrieval is kind of seen as half of IVF and that now IVF is such a commonly used practice, just, you know, a standard procedure, we think, oh, egg retrieval is, you know, half of an acceptable procedure. It's no big deal. We can totally do it. No problem. Um, but a lot of the women reported, uh, you know, the physical symptoms being more than they had anticipated and also the emotional uh, side being more difficult as well. Um, going through something alone usually, um, whereas IVF is you know, frequently done as a couple. This is something that you know, you're doing on your own. There's no second set of ears in the exam room you know, taking in the information. So that was something else they pointed to. And I just, all the hormones that you're injecting into yes, it too. I mean, it just is such a huge decision. And I feel like your piece was super informative. I feel like I could talk to you about it all day. <laughs> well, you'll, everyone else will have to read your piece to get more information. Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining thank us. Thank you. Up next, we're gonna read your tweets. Well, we made it. It's, it's Friday. And we made it to the end of the show, thank God. I we did most to... of the heavy lifting today, so thank you. Well, that's my job. <laughs> I just wanted to read a tweet from Princess Slea, who was talking about the egg freezing segment. I love Who that. said that it was super informative and something I honestly hadn't thought much about. Yeah, it's so interesting yeah. that egg freezing has become, I guess, this way that companies are trying to entice women to come to their companies, because there's just so many ethical and like repercussions of just what that means for a woman, and it's just such an interesting topic. So thank you again, Elizabeth, for coming on and talking to us really, about really it. It was really, really interesting. It was a great segment. And we asked you what was the shadiest way you've ever been dragged, uh, you've ever dragged an ex online, rather, or in real life. Shout out to uh, Ariana Grande. And one of our producers, Rebecca, says, my ex came to my hometown bar, which is a solid 30 minutes from him, to make me jealous, I guess. So I made out with my friend in front of him, and he was pissed. <laughs> Afterwards, I talked to all of his friends, and they all turned on him and apologized to me <laughs> for coming. <laughs> Never cross Rebecca. That Rebecca. is the message. Holy crap. I mean, a revenge makeout is the best Good thing God. you can do. Okay. I think it may, that makes me, that makes me very right. proud of you, Rebecca. Bow down. <laughs> all right, well, in reference to our tweet of the day, Kirsten Baptiste says, it's true, Baby Shark is scary. I'm not messing around with those stands. Yeah, has Baby Shark peaked or what? I didn't know it was called Baby Shark. I only encountered this song for the first time with Johnny No-No. And my Pat, Pat, Patrick in the producer's room is going to be annoyed if I sing this, but, you know, Johnny No- No, okay, that's it. But yeah, I, I didn't well, know I it was called it, Baby is Shark. Is it an American thing? America? Baby was Shark? Was it? Maybe, I don't know. I don't know. Well, I, it was, it's a huge song, and now I'm a fan, and I love it. So I can understand why it is the song of 2018. I love it. <laughs> we stand. Thank you to our guests today, Caroline O'Donovan, Craig Silverman, Tarini Party, Chris Gardner, Sarah Paxton, Amber Jamison, and, of course, Elizabeth Yuko. Yes, next week we have the election, and we also have Leslie Grossman and Leon Rimes coming in. Can't fight the moon. Can't fight the moon. I'm going to dance on the table once the show's over. Don't forget, I will be hosting our special AM to DM election show on Tuesday night at 7 p.m. Be sure to vote and then tune in. Have a good... But rest this weekend. Have a good weekend, yes. everyone. We'll Happy deal Friday. with all of that craft next week. Happy next Friday. Week. It's not going anywhere. Get your drink on. Do whatever you want to do. I don't know.